This recording was originally a live conversation which took place at Start Garden back in June 2022. Founders have to be naive in some way. If you're not a bit naive and you just weigh all the risks and everything that is coming at you, why would you start a startup? It's so cumbersome. Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan. Laura, it's such a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you so much for taking the time. There's a lot of stuff that we can tell to introduce, you know, from Dine Deal, from the famous Dine Deal Mafia. You basically started on and founded Movu, a relocation company yourself, sold that. You started Holy Code, where you do nearshoring services, which you are still actively involved in today. And in between, you've actually also been CEO at Bexio, uh, SME accounting software, basically, here in Switzerland, and acted as their CEO for yeah a bit more than one and a half years. So you have plenty of stories and experience to share with us. And I first want to directly start with your personal background, Laurent. And why was the timing right to start Movu, the relocation company, back in 2014? And why were you the right person to do so? When you say relocation company, I mean, that's basically a physical relocation company. That's not what we did, right? We built a marketplace for relocations. Um, so, yeah, I'm not built in the way that I could carry your closet, for example. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know whether necessarily I was the right person to do it, to be honest. I think I just grew into the role, um, had lots of good mentors. I was just, yeah, I had an idea. I was motivated by it. I was a bit naive about it. And uh, I think that's that's what it took to get started. And I had good, good people around me, good mentors that helped me to progress along the way. And I think it's all about the rate of, uh, the, the rate of learning, how fast you can evolve and, and become better um, to keep up with the demands in the market. Was the timing right? Um, in hindsight, probably yes. Uh, but when we started, it was super, super tricky to convince moving and cleaning companies to do offers just online, you know, without having seen the place. And yeah, there were lots of things that obviously went wrong in that sense. But it's it, it was not rocket science. It was a digitalization of of, a, of an industry that needed to be more digitalized. So uh, I think any time between 2010, 2012 to now in an industry that is under digitalized is a good time to get started. Perfect. And, you know, when we actually did the Swisspreneur podcast interview a few weeks back, you mentioned that you went bankrupt, almost, almost bankrupt four times. What kind of emotional impact did that have on you and your team? Because we often hear, you know, the success stories in entrepreneurship, but that's also part of the success story. So what impact did that have on you and your team? Yeah, that's the shitty part, right? Um uh, and that's a lot of the, the work in a startup usually is for. It's a bit more of the dirty stuff than the glamorous stuff. Um, but the first one or two were really tough um, because we were really transparent with the team back then. And we had a lot of people that had families and were the sole provider for their families, you know, maybe didn't have a lot of shares in the company. So they had a good, a good salary or an okay salary. So that was really tough to tell them, look, I don't know if I can pay your salary in, in two, two weeks from now. Maybe you want to look for another job. Um, but on the other side, it also shows you who's really committed to the cause, right? Uh, for good and bad. And I think it really helped us as a team to, to grow even closer, to really support each other, to, to do what was necessary to get there. But 
yeah, that was really tough knowing that I cannot support the people in my company um, because I had no savings. I was, I was also broke and then the company is going broke. So yeah, what are you going to do? Um, we were lucky because we, at each of these steps, we had one or two or three investors that would either give us a bridge financing um, or we had someone in the last minute saying, okay, I'm also joining the, the, the deal. And then it somehow worked out. And even when we sold the company, the company was actually, uh, we needed a loan from the buyer to survive until they bought the company. That's still, to me, that I, I still don't know how this worked out. It still blows my mind that a buyer would finance us just to buy us afterwards. But yeah, that was uh, that was also the case. So up until the last moment of being uh, a free company, so to speak, we were always facing bankruptcy. And uh, I think it makes you quite, quite, how can I say that, honest and, and humble for the, mm-hmm. yeah. Or what you have in the end, right? But I think that's cash flow is the, the, the mo- most important thing. That's the oxygen of each startup, and you need to really manage it well. Absolutely. And in that regard, you, you now describe both, right? There was the, the stress, the emotional stress, the pressure, the responsibility that you faced, but also the upsides to a certain degree, where you said the positive effect, right? Where you said it got you closer as a team. What overweights the, the positive or the negative? <laughs> if, it, if it turns out fine, obviously the positives, right? Um, I cannot tell you how it would have turned out, what it would have been if it would have turned out negatively. I've seen a few companies where they went bankrupt and they couldn't pay the salaries and these sort of things that, that where it ended ugly, uh, mm. but it doesn't necessarily have to. So, yeah, I mean, obviously I'm biased because it went, it, it turned out well, but I think it is super crucial, these, these moments, and uh, you need a bit of luck. Yeah. And then you actually were lucky. You sold the company to the Swiss insurance Baluas. Why did you decide to sell? Was that already a plan from the beginning? Yes and no. I mean, I knew from the beginning that this company is by itself not big enough to sustain and build an ecosystem around it. We would either have to transform into a bigger uh, uh, platform where we probably do all services, all handyman services, et cetera, which we tried, but were unsuccessful. Um, and by the time that I saw that, I knew that we would have to become part of a bigger ecosystem around this home ecosystem that all the big insurance companies, etc., are trying to build. Um, so it was very, for me, it was quite clear that at some stage we would have to be a part of something bigger. Um, yeah, but it wasn't necessarily the plan to sell after three years already. That's just because we were lucky, in a sense. Got it. And now today you actually focus on Holy Code, where you provide nearshoring development services. And you also have plenty of product development experience yourself, obviously, from building your companies. So that's what we actually want to talk about as a focus topic today, right? Iterating your product and building a great product. Let me start with the first question in that regard. From your experience, from your perspective, what mistakes do you see Swiss startups making repeatedly when it comes to building a great product? There's a great variety of issues that that I see, but uh, I mean, if I try to break it down into into a couple that that I see happen a lot is that a lot of startups start with a co-founder or a CTO that is not really good at it. Um, And if you're, I'm now speaking for technical and and product related startups, right? And if you do that, you'll always end up in a bad spot, five, six, seven, eight months down the road. Um, You need someone that is capable of, of giving you a reference architecture of helping you set it up properly as soon as possible. Um, I know these the good co-founders, technical co-founders are super hard to find, um, but maybe you can find someone that that does it part-time at the beginning just to help you get started and have, and 
have the overview over the team um, so that you know they're not building crap. Because usually what happens is I see a team after six to 12 to 18 months um, tell us that they're not, get, not capable of really creating much more value, their dev team is too slow, and you start looking at what they built and it's just, yeah, it's built on quicksand. Um, Dynegene was built on a social network page in the start, and we had to rebuild it overnight for a year. Every day we were doing the normal job, and then overnight we had to rebuild it um, just to be capable of, of adding new features afterwards. So that's one, uh, starting with a proper CTO. Then another thing that I see a lot of startups do, which in the beginning I think is fine, but at some point it's not anymore, is to miss the the moment when you need to have a specific product department. Because usually one of the founders has this product feel and, and wants to be the CPO, so to say, the chief product officer. Um, but at some point, it's that's not going to be possible anymore. So then you're either the CPO or you're the CFO, the CEO, the CEO, whatever you are. But doing both at the same time basically means that nobody's really focused on the product anymore. So that's something you need to decide also quite early on are you the CPO and someone else is doing the management parts mm -hmm. um, or do you hire someone as the CPO or the first product owner or whatever you want to call it, right? It doesn't have to be a C title. I want to quickly also go back to the first point that you mentioned, you know, if you're looking for a technical co-founder, a CTO, it's most likely that you don't really have a lot of experience in that regard yourself. How do you recognize a good CTO and how can you tell from someone who's good at it and someone who's not? You can't. Simple as that. I mean, what you what your job as a co-founder is, is to, to check whether the values, the, the vision, whatever you want to do together, whether that fits, whether you feel that this is a person you can you can really work with. Um, hopefully he's he or she is different to you so that you're complementary. But I always advise you to try and find someone in your network that is really good technically to give you a second opinion, to have a one, two, three hour session with that person. Um, and tell you afterwards, yeah, they can cover this and this and this. And in, and in these regards, when these topics, you should have a mentor coaching them. Um, yeah, and I think that's super important because uh, you otherwise you just need to be lucky that you have a CTO that can actually do what he said. And to also, you know, sort of protect your company to that degree, then you can also work with the regular vesting clause, et cetera, to sure. if you have to make a switch, it will never be easy, but that you can actually protect the company from going down. Yeah, I think that's a must-have in any anybody that joins, even as a co-founder, you need to have a super well-structured, um, uh, let's not say term sheet, but the shareholder agreement uh, with Westing, uh, with Cliffs, et cetera. Um, that should be, the thing, uh, should be there for always because afterwards, the first investors will look at that and if they see it's not there, um, it's hard to get someone to invest into your company if the basics are missing. Yeah, true. Now, of course, you're also interested to actually talk about the product itself. So from your perspective, of your experience, what actually makes a good, a great product? <laughs> that can vary very strongly, but I think in the end, it's one thing that's always in common is focus on user experience and nothing else. Um, because by focusing on user experience at some point, you will either hit a jackpot or at least build a product that your users really like, right? Um, yeah, I think that's really, so there's two underlyings that are super important. One is focus on user experience and two is work with as much data as you can, as early as you can. Um, try to have data points in, in, in abundance, find a way to have someone that can help you with BI early on, try to, to put that into a system. Um, and then the rest is really 
I think I told yeah also in the, the podcast back then I told you I think it's still the same same underlying it's the lean startup um, method like really iterate on a super super fast scale don't try to iterate on two big things try to test uh, your hypothesis on uh, as quickly as possible and if you do these two if, if you have a lot of data if you focus on user experience and you're really fast at doing these uh, product cycles um, chances are you're going to get some place and yeah, where you usually start is your MVP, right? Um, how do you ideally build and also test your first product ideas and assumptions? Maybe you can also share some of it, the examples that you went through yourself. Yeah, I think, again, that's also back going back to the Lean Startup, right? So the first part you want to do is you want to make sure that you have, that your value hypothesis is, is holding up, right? You're not, you shouldn't start scaling. I think we talk about that afterwards as well, but you shouldn't start scaling too early. So first you need to be able to have a value hypothesis where you can say, I don't know, a user is interacting with my tool every day or every second day, or a user is willing to pay money for whatever offer, um, offer that I have. So you need to show that there is value in what you do. Mm -hmm. um, and once you do that and you can replicate that on a couple of users, then it's time to start thinking about the scaling part, right? Um, and in order to get there, you might have to try a couple of things. So what I would never do is build a big technical product or, or try to invest too much in it early on because chances are really high that the first two, three, four, five cycles are for nothing um, except for the learnings that you make out of it. So work with paper prototypes um, try to do something on a on a, a Shopify shop, you know, try to have something super easy, super fast and, and, and work with that. What we did at mobile was we just put up a one-page webpage um, redirected some AdWords traffic onto that page, got people to sign up with their phone number, and then we called them and the rest was a, a manual process. But if we could get them to uh, give us the data via the phone and we could send them offers and we could prove that they would book one of those companies, that was enough for us afterwards to know that we can build a digital service out of that, right? And so yeah, yeah that's, that's our first iteration that we did. It took us two days to set it up, basically. Perfect. And you also mentioned before the importance of data, basically. So what KPIs and metrics should you actually track from the beginning? What is important to really focus on right there? Like, again, that can also vary depending on, on what you do um, and with the, which direction you go. But as I said before, try to track as much as you can. Um, but in the end, the most important things are unit economics. So not... not uh, absolute numbers of users and these sort of things. They're also important as a reference, but in the end, it's really unit economics like um, conversion rates, churn rates, um, activation rates, these sort of things where you can see um, where in your funnel that something is not working well. You know, why are they not going on after this page or why can I not get them to convert? If, if that doesn't work on the scale of 10 users, it will also not work on the scale of 10,000 users, right? So um, that's why I think this is really a lot of people and a lot of business angels also still focus on what's your revenue, what's your number of users and these sort of things. And that's fine. You need to have that. But it's more important that qualitatively the users that you have have a really good experience and that they're really happy and you don't lose a lot of those because on, at, at large, at scale, these are the ones that are really going to cost you money, the dropouts along the way. I love that point. I think that's a really great takeaway to uh, you know memorize. Something that I also feel many entrepreneurs have a bit of a false assumption in mind is how long it actually takes to build a great product. 
it's probably an ongoing process that is never really done. But what is your take? How long does it actually take to build a great product? You know, until you asked me that question, I never thought about that. But I think you're actually right. There is quite the bias in that sense that, um, and I, uh, that part we already talked about once in another episode, I think, where I think founders have to be naive in some way. If you're not a bit naive and you just weigh all the risks and everything that is coming at you, why would you start a startup? It's so cumbersome. Um, so I think because of that, there is a certain positivity, optimism, naivety to it that you that you just bring to it. Um, and you believe you can build a great product in 12 to 18 months, but that's not true, right? You can probably build one good product stream or one good feature or whatever in a couple of months and etc um, and then you grow it from there but i think you're never really done with building a great product by the time you feel that you're done either a competitor is building something better or there's something new that you want to add to it um, but i think in general to say you build something that is not just good for certain users but also works at scale um, and is prof profitable at scale, it usually takes around three years, I would say. Um, there's always slack in these sort of examples where it's just completely different. But in general, I would say you would probably have around three years to grow not just the product, but the team that is building the product, to have the processes in place, to have a user base that is big enough to be in a position where you can be profitable if you want to. All these things, I think that usually takes around three years. And actually also to get there, you know, once you, you sort of pass this MVP stage, then it's also much more about setting the right priorities and the right focus. So I also wonder with your experience, how do you actually prioritize your product features and also the roadmap behind it? We've tried a lot of different things. Um, again, coming back, it should be based on data and uh, user experience, um, user feedback that you're getting. Um, so. First, so at mobile first, what we tried is really just from the calls we had with clients and companies, that was basically the data that we had. Then at some point we had some data from Google Analytics and uh, our data plan, I think was our first BI tool. Um, yeah, probably nobody remembers that German company. Um, and then we had it from there uh, together with the feedback from all the team members. Then at some point we started to have all of it prepared by product. So they had they did the whole data analytics, they did the UX research, et cetera, prepared tickets. But then we would bring everybody into one room every two weeks, and then we would look at what is prioritized, and then teams could fight about, uh, about it, right? Like custom care would say, no, that makes no sense. We shouldn't focus on sales. We have to focus on this. That's what we tried for a while. Friction was too high. Uh, I like you know this open and dialogue setups, but it didn't work. Um, so then we went back to the more classical setup of saying, look, the product guys know what they're doing. Um, they do the data analysis. They know what, what we're going to build. Uh, they have talks with all of you guys uh, on a weekly basis. Um, let them figure it out. At Bexio, which is a much larger scale company where you have like seven, eight, nine different dev teams and product guys, uh, we really tried to stream uh, to uh, uh, have stream aligned teams. So some of them would take care of the banking part. Some of them would take care of the uh, invoice part, et cetera. And they would individually uh, decide on these things, right? But the, the maxim was always, if you take a decision, it has to be justifiable by data. Otherwise, yeah, move on to something that you can't justify. It's too risky. And then also to align everyone, right? There are so many different frameworks or methodologies that you can choose from. You probably tried a few of them. You have uh, experiences in that regard. Do you have a favorite one? Do you 
you know, heavily rely on Scrum or Kanban or what, what is your favorite methodology to really focus on the product iteration development? I have two. Um, you mentioned them already. So I think for everyone that any team that can have this sort of measurable velocity or speed um, uh, where there's certain stability and where output speed is really relevant. Um, so development teams usually not, maybe not in the first days, but once you have a setup and a good, uh, good team. So development teams, um, uh, also customer care teams, these sort of teams where it's quite quantifiable, measurable. Um, I really prefer to work in scrums. Um, uh, it's a bit more work before each sprint to align, um, but it's also you have every two weeks this heartbeat, this deadline that you want to reach stuff. And uh, I think that really helps. Whereas for more creative work, let's say that's just marketing, doesn't have to be. Marketing can also be very quantifiable, but um, let's say marketing teams or design teams, um, or also if you start a new venture in your company or a new business line or whatever, they are really prefer to work in a Kanban setup um, where it's all about making sure that you don't have too many things going on at the same time and you try to optimize how fast you can move them from left to right, from open to done. Um, I think that really depends on that creative work. You cannot yeah, just pr press a button and it's done. Um, but as soon as it gets more planable, more reliable, uh, for me, Scrum is still the way to go. Um, it's annoying as hell, um, but also to me, because I like flexibility, but it's over the long time or over the longer term, it's the thing that for me, it's like running a marathon. It's what gets you across the line. Can you also talk a bit more how you then actually executed that with your product and development team? Yeah, I mean, so what I think is super important is that you have someone that knows probably a Scrum Master certificate or something like that, someone that really knows what they're doing um, because otherwise, it doesn't work. Um, not not in the long run, because then usually you start and then three months later, you've lost Scrum. You still call it Scrum and you, you still uh, have sprints, but actually what you're doing is just some random planning and then some people work on it and some don't. But So I think it's there you really need, we, we always called him General Nikolic. That was our CTO. And he could be, he's a really nice dude, but he can, he can be really strong and fierce and uh, protective of his Scrum team. So I think you really need someone there that has that, that personality, that character traits to say no lots and to make sure that everything runs smoothly. Um, whereas with the, the Kanban method there, I think you don't necessarily need that. You, you have much more freedom there to work with each other. Um, yeah, and, and, and I think that's something that almost any team understands how it works. So yeah, I think that's much easier to implement, but it doesn't have the same output, in my opinion, over the longer term. Yeah. And despite these sprint preparations, did you also have larger planning meetings to actually prepare the sprints much more in advance? Or how do you manage that? The level of the next level above was OKRs, objectives and key results, where you have yearly goals and then we had quarterly goals. And you have uh, and we didn't go down to the level of having objectives and key results for each employee individually. We stopped at team levels. So we had mm -hmm. company goals and company objectives and key results, and then teams could pick the key results that they felt they can influence and use that as objectives and key results for themselves and, and build on that. That's where we stopped, right? And then from that, um, the product team was, well, someone from the product team was with each team when they did that to see that the resources that they would need from data analytics, from BI, from product, from dev are actually available. Because otherwise, the first couple of times we did it, 
yeah, we could have had six Scrum, six Scrum teams more and we still wouldn't have been able to fulfill all the wishes, right? So I think that's really, that's where product is super important to align those interests and make sure that, that people don't always do everything technically. You can always find some technical solution to your problem, but there's also solutions that are probably not technical where you don't need a dev team. And I think that's something that the product team has to be good at over time if the company grows to, to help teams figure out what they can do on their own rather than going through the dev team that you have in the company because that slows you down massive. And talking about growth, perfect segue. When is the right time to scale your product organization? Because you don't want to do that too early that you then just have to rebuild everything or rebuild the wrong thing. But you also don't want to do it too late that you then you know, run into problems later down the road. So we're talking specifically about the product organization. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, as I said, I think after six to 12 months, probably, or whenever you feel like product is becoming a part-time job for you as a founder, that's when you need to decide whether you are doing product or someone else is doing it. That's the first step. And then after that, I think it's the scaling of product is, is quite, quite a natural process. If you see that the dev team is starting to complain that stuff is not prepared well enough, it has to do with product. Usually, if you have someone that is good in product, they don't have time anymore, right? So maybe they need to do too much data analysis. Maybe they need to do too much UX research, et cetera. And then you need to really dig down and figure out okay, what's the person strong at? So do we need someone that is doing UX research for them? Do we need a data and analytics person? Um, do they transfer into one of those things and we have another PO? Um, or is it they keep doing everything and we just add the second person that also does that? But if you have a second person, you also need a second scrum team, right? So, I mean, that's where, that's where you have to find the right balance uh, for yourself. But I think that scales quite naturally. I think the next important step then is when do you have a CPO, right? Um, and I think you don't necessarily need a CPO for a long time, but you need one representative in management that has this call. Um, because what happened in our company, mobile, for example, was we had a very good product guy that was running this team, but he was not the CPO and he was not in the management meetings. So, you know, the key person was sort of missing and we were taking decisions and he would have to then operate on that. And that makes no sense at all. So even if that person is not management, they should be present um, in the management meetings to show their view and, and help you. Um, yeah, and the CPO, yeah, whether then that's that person or later on, that depends on your financial situation, et cetera, but that person needs to be there. And I think you need a CPO or a team lead as soon as your UX, PO, PM, whatever team is three, four, five people. Then really you need someone that starts, that starts bringing it all together. I think actually as of three people, because then you have too many too many streams and too many options to go after, then you need one person that really only does that and, and informs everyone in the company. And you already mentioned a few different roles, right? So I also wonder, as you usually scale and grow as a company, you also need different roles and different skills in the product organization. So what are like the key roles and how do you organize them? I think it really depends again on how you, how, what the founders can or cannot do, where you're strong at, right? So if you have, a really strong technical co-founder that is also very interested in data analytics, then maybe the data part lies with the dev team, right? But usually I would say a good product organization has um, covers everything from user research, uh, UX um, over data analytics, um, uh, data analytics or BI, um, business requirement engineering, and then also in the end, 
uh, end tests basically to make sure that whatever was built also fulfills that. So that by that already you will have quite a few different roles. So you will definitely have um, quite early on a product manager or, or product owner, probably be a bit of, bit of both. Um, that person, but at that point, that person also does UX research, also relies heavily on sales and customer care and these customer-facing people um, to, yeah, to acquire that knowledge. And that's something they need to be good at. Um, and soon thereafter, you will need someone that focuses on data, like a data analyst or a business uh, a BI analyst or something like that, that really has the more mathematical approach to these things and can also build a data lake and, and, and create nice charts out of that and help you uh, ask the right questions because um, otherwise you won't find the right answers. Um, so in general, I think it will grow over time into a department that has um, uh, UX UI capabilities um, that is doing the user research, et cetera, um, but also the designs. Then you have the data analytics, the BI, that is more the mathematical part. Then you maybe have product managers that are in contact with all the departments to collect it and pre-sort it. And then you have the product owners that are really specifying what has to be done and shipped and make sure that this is being done and shipped on time. Fantastic. And now, of course, the question, the world looks a bit different now post or after COVID than before. But the question is also, can you do all of that in a remote setting? Does that work? Yes. <laughs> Again, depends on your culture, your product, your footprint or market where you're working in. But um, up until COVID came, any client we had for nearshoring in, in Eastern Europe, I always had to convince them that you can work remotely. As of COVID, even the biggest companies in the world suddenly started working remotely and it all worked fine. There's now reasons why they come back to the office. I'm not quite sure whether those are the right ones. Um, but I think for a lot of parts, you can definitely do that remote. However, what I think is really important is that the people that are doing the UX research that speak to your users or need to look at what they do, they need to be or understand the local markets, the local languages and these sort of things. That part, I think, is not working remotely from another culture, from another country that easily. It still can if you have a genius, but usually it's really tricky to understand. It starts with, you know, how do you format uh, uh, currencies, you know, like, or how do you format dates? If you if you live in Switzerland, you format it differently than probably to the United States and these things. And that's not stuff you want to teach someone or that they should be thinking about that should come to them naturally. And so that part, I think, has to be someone that understands the local culture where you are working, um, but it doesn't necessarily have to be someone on site. Got it. Perfect. Lauren, thank you so much for these insights. We also have a few more minutes reserved for Q&A. So I'm going to open it up here to Michael and Eloa. Please uh, feel free to ask any questions for Laurent if you have any. Hi, yeah, thank you. Thank you very much, Laurent, for the amazing talk. Um, yeah, so so what I'm very curious about, you have like uh, 200 engineers, right? So, and um, I was wondering, have you, are most of them hired as, um, is the experience level at the moment you're hiring them already at the point where you want them or are you training them when you onboard them? So, yeah, we have now almost 350 developers um, and usually they work for one specific client. So it's right. So it's a, it depends a bit on what the client wants, but it's always a bit the same thing that they want to have senior, 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 senior people. And then at some point they start realizing 
oh, if these people leave, we have nobody that can replace them. Uh, and then they start hiring juniors or meteors that acquire the, the domain know-how, but are maybe technically not that great. But the domain know-how, the bigger the company gets, the more important the domain know-how is, and not really the how good you are at coding, because you can find someone else that is good at that, but you need domain know-how. Um, so I would say in the beginning, it's always very senior people. Yes, sure, you're still training them and they learn on the job, but um, they're very, yeah, very self-sufficient. And over time, you start really adding layers to the team, um, but they're then managed by the seniors usually. So I don't know, maybe the other way around, starting with juniors from the start only works if you have someone in your team already that is very senior and can do that, right? So if you are a good CTO or if you have someone that is a good CTO, you can consider doing that. Um, it has advantages. So people are really, usually we found that people are super grateful that they can learn a hell of a lot in a startup from start, right? And grow with you. They will stay with you even though their salary could be much better if they go to another company for quite some time because of what they've learned here, how, how, um, how integrated they feel. So it has benefits, um, but if you have more technical challenges, um, you will be in a bit of a trouble. And also if you only have one CTO or one senior dev, that's a very, very fatal risk if something goes wrong. Okay, cool. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, we're, we're currently trying that, that we are hiring junior devs and um, mm -hmm. basically raising them in our startup. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, that's a really good approach. And I think as long as you have someone or uh, hopefully in the future, two or three people that can oversee them, um, then your your risk with doing that approach shouldn't be too big. Okay, cool. Thank you. Thank you for the question, Michael. Eloa, you have a question. Yeah, maybe about the values. Uh, first, thank you for, for your time. Everything is really interesting. I, I wonder, at the beginning, I guess it's, it's easier to implement the values inside the company because we have the time to speak with everyone and share and get feedback. And then when you grow, uh, scale, how do you make sure that your values are still implemented inside the company and not just something that you say at the onboarding? Uh, so first, how do you define them? And second, how, how do you make sure that they really define the company and not only, yeah. yeah. So... I mean, those are really good questions because it's something that I think we, we did okay too well, but you, you always struggle a bit with that. Um, I had a few coaches that told me values have to come from the founders, otherwise it doesn't work. So it has to really come from you guys that start the company. You set out, set out to achieve something. It's your vision. It's your company. So in the, in the beginning, it's relatively easy. The important part is to be aware of them, to write them down. Right, because you're carrying them with you and you're going through your business and, and that's fine. But as soon as the team starts growing, if they're not defined, you will start losing them a bit. So write them down, make it visible to everybody and speak about it a lot. I think that's super important that you speak about it. Also that when you're in meetings where you want to take a decision that you can say, making a stupid example, is that in line with our customer focus value or is that in line with our transparency value or does that go against it? You know, so that people really start understanding Ooh, actually, these values are here because they should help us make decisions, right? So that's the start. And then the bigger the company grows, the more important it is, as you said, that in onboarding, you really position that well, that you as founders go talk to people in their first meetings and you really emphasize that this is important. So the way we did it is we said, you have yearly performance evaluation, obviously, like everybody, 
um, and it's 50% of it is based on your performance and 50% is based on your values. And if you fail on the values side, even if you perform well, you're out of the company. And that's something we really pushed afterwards. So the first year people were thinking, yeah, yeah, sure. And then after the first two, three people had to leave the team because they performed well, but they didn't fit the, the values or they didn't live up to them. Um, you could really feel that some people, some, not all of them, started thinking about whether this is A, the right workplace for them, or B, how they can um, uh, act more in line with our values and our, and our system in place, basically. Okay. And how do you get, I mean, do you get the feedback from, from your team? Or did you really say, okay, now that's my value as a founder, and you... You oh, yeah, into it or no? <laughs> I didn't address that question, sorry. Um, so in the beginning, it's really founders, top down, that's it. And then as soon as the team starts growing a bit, what we did is once a year, we, we revisited them. And it was always the same starting point for me. I always said we were five people last year, we were 15 now. We've added new people, that changes the dynamics. Maybe they bring something to the company that we weren't aware of before. So. Let's let's talk about the values. And then we always did a workshop where we really looked at what is important to each individual person. Does that do they fit the value system? Sure, but that's not really what we looked at. More, we looked more at which of these values appear more often. So what seems to be the common denominators for our company? Um, and at the same time, where do we want the company to evolve towards? And then what we did is always we had four values that were based of the group and one value that we wanted to strive for, to become better at. Um, I think more is not realistic because you cannot change yourself and the company that easily, right? So that's the way that we tried to go about it. And then if you hit 30 or 35 or 40 people, <laughs> these workshops okay. don't work anymore, right? You cannot get everybody involved in a workshop like that. So then we started to really do it with surveys. So everybody had to add their, um, mm. their values in a survey. Um, we From there, we took it. We, made a proposal, we sent it to everybody, everybody could talk about it again. And then after that, we went to each team and got the final criticism by them speaking out again, so that they not just voted on it, but they really had to use their mouth to say whether they're in on it or not. Mm. For me, that's really um, I, exactly at the stage where we are going to 20 people. So at the, at the beginning, it was from the founder. And right now, I've, I'm feeling that, okay, we need to bring them there, I feel that the team is into the vision, but maybe the values are not implemented enough yet. Um, so I feel like you said, we need to write them down and really try to make example or, um, on a daily basis. But then the, the question is, uh, is really important, for me it's really important to, like you said, um, you said uh, values are here to help us to make the good decision. Uh, because at the end of the day, you can, when you have the tree of solution, you can do this one or this one, and no one will tell you what to do, but you have to stay from what you have decided from the start. So I'm right at this point where I'm trying to understand, okay, what are the, then the values that we need to promote so that they can help everyone to make short decision, a short-term decision. So how did you... My question is, is it really theoretically or how, how does it go in practice? Do you really see that happen or is that more a great thing that startups are trying to do? Or do you, um, but first part and second, uh, how, how important do you think that investors are sensible to that also? Um, first part, I think 
on a fundamental level, it always works. If you write them down already, if you show that in a, in a job interview or if you put it in your job description, um, it will scare away certain people that are not in line with that, right? And maybe you would anyway figure that out in your job interview. But I think on, on that level, it already works to help create the filter, mm -hmm. not to have a homogeneous group, right? You don't want everybody to be the same, but you want them to hold the same set of values at okay. least. Um, so because of that, it already works. If you just write it down and you put it to, to the recruiting and to the onboarding, that already helps massively. Um, but yes, if you don't live it, forget it. Uh, it will not become part of, of your culture. Um, and that starts with you, right? So you really, the management team, the founding team, you really need to make this um, part of your decision process and part of your, also of your uh, employment process. So people, if people want to get a better position in your company, or if they, as, as I said before, if they just want to be part of the company still, they need to live up to these values. And then you need to be able to, if you're really convinced of your values, you need to be able to let go top performers because they're not fitting the culture. And that's scary as hell. Yes. Yes. But for us, it worked. We twice did it too late. And I can tell you, in hindsight, it's obvious. Um, but when you're in there, you're not ready for that. And then you also have team members that push against it because that top performer yes. is helping them reach their goals or whatever, right? Um, but culture over time always wins, in my opinion. It's like running a marathon. You need the right shoes and culture yes. are the right shoes. Absolutely. <laughs> and how do you think that Mbisu can see them, see it? Because in, in the duty or more, like, how do they feel that? So you mean the investors or who are we talking about? Yes, investors. Yeah, I mean, I can only quickly tell you from my side, I believe that um, when you do a due diligence, that's one of the boxes they want to have ticked, that the company has a vision, a mission, has values, has OKRs yes. or whatever in place. So that's something, surely, if it's not there, they will start asking questions. Um, however, how much in a board setup, for example, that's where I think of investors. I don't, yeah. In a board setup where you need to make calls and decisions with them, how much that they are being influenced by that, I cannot really say. The, the, the people that I used to work with, they weren't really fond of that. They were really fond of quantifiable arguments, etc. Um, yeah, but I, I think in the end, they invest into you and your company because also partly because you have a set of values and yeah, yeah. showing that and talking about it probably isn't wrong. Um, but yeah, I, I wouldn't say that this is probably a competitive edge in any way. I think it's a must-have. It's a sanity factor. I have one last question for you, Laurent, then. Um, basically, you know, what you also often hear is like sales, uh, they have the closeness to the customer, right? But then the product and the engineering team are basically building the product. So how should that relationship best be set up that you can both benefit from each other without being a pain in the ass? Have a filter. Um, and salespeople probably don't have that filter, you know, they, that's, that's not how they operate. But um, I think it's super important that you listen every time a salesperson comes or a customer care employee comes that you listen to what they're saying. But that's the qualitative feedback. And then you run it through a quantitative filter like, OK, thank you for telling me the second time this week that uh, we need to build this in this feature because otherwise we will not get these clients. Let's look at how many times in our database this was requ uh, requested or, you know, how many, how many clients we have that are looking for this term or whatever. So try to quantify it and then feed it back to the sales because sales and customer care in general, 
they come from a, a more emotional place. They're usually not the most quantitative people. And when they hear something five times on a day, that's the most pressing matter sometimes. Um, and I'm not saying they're wrong because in that uh, moment it is, but product needs to look at it from a higher level, from a longer term perspective and, and prioritize it. So it's really important to listen to it, but then to have a quantitative filter and, and feed that back to them. Perfect. Thank you so much, Laurent. Also no for joining us today. I like really good and valuable input. Thank you so much. Yeah, sure. Thanks. No worries. Drake, thank uh, you very much. Thank yeah, sure. Yeah, Drake, and I don't know if you heard the question about the values. Yeah. Maybe okay. you want to say yeah. a few words. Uh, how do you feel about that? Yeah. Um, I have lots of thoughts, actually. And I think we better <laughs> continue that maybe in, in another time. That way we're respectful of uh, Laurent okay. and everybody's calendar today. But Lots more to discuss there, I'm sure, and, and we can have an extended conversation about that. But thank you. Okay. Thank right. you. Thank you very much for, for uh, doing this, Laurent and Sylvan. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Have a nice thank time. You. See you guys. You too. Ciao. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, you can support us by rating our show on Apple Podcasts. This way, we can reach an ever-growing number of aspiring entrepreneurs. 